It's it's after midnight and dark and quiet in San Francisco. It's been a very long time since the last episode, but a lot has happened. But let's continue. Chapter 10, Part 2. Hey, who's there? She clasps her knees tighter and tries to sink her head between her shoulders. Hey, I see your hood, princess. Hey, beauty, let me see your eyes. Up, up, you've seen all of us, now let's see some of you. I think it really is a girl. Princess, beauty, Maharani. And they laugh and kick the water, frothing the pond white and filling the forest with shouting. None of them comes near her. She, she keeps her head bowed in the tall grass, her eyes shut, and she feels her face flaring with shame. She jumps when she feels the fingers wet from the pond touch her closed eyelids. Hey, look! Watch yourself, crocodiles bite in these waters. I really think he's doing it, the bravest man I've ever seen. And they shout with laughter, but not the man whose damp fingers lay on her eyelids a moment and who now stands half revealed in the water before her looking curiously up at her, a slight smile on his wet lips. Then Dara jumps up and runs off, sprinting through the forest and hearing the laughter behind her slowly fading in the distance with the sound of the water being beaten and churned. That night, her mother asks her if anything is wrong. Dara turns away and says nothing. After a pause, her mother asks her again if anything is wrong, and this time asking her also if she has been bleeding again. And Dara blushes and says, no, of course not, and goes back to her work. But in her work, she can find no satisfaction. She wants to sit beneath a tree in the starlight and look at the night and think of the city of Lucknow, and the stars that, so it is sometimes said by the other girls, have fallen to earth there. The following day, Dara and her family join with other poorer families in a celebration at the temple of Shiva. There's a procession through the village, a long parade that leads to the temple in a slow, noisy march. Flowers are piled up along the route, reaching to two colorful mounds at the temple entrance. Fruits and curries are ready to be offered to the god, and there is dancing and singing in the poor and the outer porches. Dara alone is silent. At the door leading to the dark interior, she suddenly stops. Her mother looks angrily and mutters something to her, but Dara's eyes stare wide into the dark blackness before her, and she refuses to go in. Her mother grabs her elbow and, glancing around at the curious crowd behind them, starts jostling her daughter. Suddenly, Dara gives way, and she stumbles into the small, dark hall with its tiny statues lit by flames and shallow bowls of oil. She stares around her blankly at the carvings of Shiva making love to his various consorts and her lips tremble. 
she almost runs outside again, but the crowd coming through the doorway is too dense, and she stops frozen throughout the ceremony. She keeps her eyes rigidly to the floor, not looking up until it is done. The offerings made, the songs sung, the young novice priest finished with his reading of the text, the dancing over, the prayers completed, and she is outside again in the sunlight, the music of the Sanskrit and of the sacred instruments vibrating emptily in her ears. She can remember none of it. All she can see within her are the carvings of Shiva and his wives, Uma, Parvati, Devi, Gauri, Durga, Bhairavi, Barala, Kali, which she had never noticed before, never truly seen, but which now seem extraordinary and shameful and fascinating and hideous and beautiful. On the way back to the, to the house, they pass a roadside shrine to Vishnu. Dara suddenly kneels before the shrine for several minutes praying in silence and offers flowers she has picked from Shiva's blossoms to the god of preservation. Then she stands awkwardly and runs back to her family, her mother turning to look at her in surprise. Her mother shakes her head but says nothing. Her father, who did not see the incident at the temple, asks her why she did that. She does not answer, and he does not ask her again. That evening, as a shadow of night is slipping over the eyes of the day, Dara is bringing home a clay jar filled with water, balancing it on her head, her neck taut, her back firm, her eyes on the path ahead of her, her slender hips swaying against the folds of the loosely fitting cloth. She can hear the soft rasp of the floricam from the enclosing shadows of a grove. Suddenly, two lights flare ahead of her, and the roar of a machine passes her in the twilight, a sound of laughter enveloping her a moment and disappearing behind her. It is quickly growing darker, and she is frightened. She hurries on, but the weight of the water jar holds her back, and she feels the water slushing over her hands, over down her arms, off her elbows to the ground. When she hears the car returning, she tries to run. The headlights throw her shadow against a clump of weeds and earth. She stumbles. The jar falls. It breaks in two, and the water disappears into the dry soil. She's trying to fit the two pieces together when she hears the sound of footsteps behind her. She turns to look and is blinded at first by the headlights of the parked car. It's Maharani, Princess, Beauty. Their voices are suddenly subdued, embarrassed, of schoolboys whose joke has gone too far. Dara turns back to the broken vessel and again tries to match the two pieces. Then she feels a second shadow crouched next to her, and two hands take the pieces from her and from her and bring them together with a click. We'll get you another jar, the shadow says, or seems to say. I'll fill it with water myself.
in the light from the car, she recognizes the man-boy who touched her eyes by the edge of the pond, and she starts. They drive her back to their lodgings. He gets her friends to find her a jar like the one she has broken then, as he promised, fills it with water himself. Smiling, he watches her as she stands shamefaced in the luxurious quarters of the rich men's sons. Then they drive her home. In bed, she thinks of him, his eyes as he looked at her from the pond, his chest as it sloped into the water, the sound of his voice on the road, and the bend of his shoulders as he poured the water into the jar. Her eyes narrow and she strokes her breasts and thighs. The next day he visits her house, bringing her a small gift, a clutch of beads in recompense for my badness. She accepts and looks away. He has difficulty speaking more and leaves soon afterward. That afternoon, she learns that he and his friends have returned to Lucknow. In the days ahead, she takes long walks alone in the forest, holding the beads tightly in her hand. She wanders up and down the one road, looking in the distance for the long, for the flag of dust of the coming car. In the evenings, she stands beneath the twilight and counts the awakening stars, telling herself stories about Lucknow. Two weeks later, he returns, bringing her a necklace and a bracelet. He also drives her around the village and the countryside in his car. She sees parts of her own country she has never known. They talk and laugh. She wants to know about Lucknow, about the university, about everything. He tries to tell her, but she doesn't let him finish and answer before asking her him two more questions. When he leaves, she cries to herself, herself to sleep for many days. But he returns again and again. Months pass. He becomes a regular visitor to the village. The eyes of the villagers grow accustomed to him. Even her father can bear him speaking of the city without flinching. Only her mother still shakes her head, but she says nothing. And then the time for his final examinations arrives. Several days afterwards, he visits Dara, subdued and uncertain. He tells her that his parents are sending him to America to study for several years. I can't support you yet. He stares down into the dust of the village road. Then he asks her to marry him. Quiet. He is sleeping. The house is as silent as the village twilight. From outside comes the whisper of traffic passing through the brilliant morning. The odd, evanescent blend of the sounds of ox cart and automobile, bicycle and sandaled foot and bus, ancient half-ruined truck and wind-pearled sari. Woven into the reverie of afterlove is the tumultuous welcoming of the day. Daras glides over to the small black statue of the god of love and takes it down from the shelf, weighing it in her small 
lithe hand. She bends the crescent eyes and brushes her lips across them. The wood's black warmth against the lips breathing. The smooth notches against her smooth skin. She presses the figure against her cheek and cradles it there, shaking her head slowly, her own eyes closed to small black crescents, the lashes quivering. How happy I am. How long. From the next room comes the sound of Montal breathing slowly and deeply, sleeping. <laughs>